1: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'll Never Told You, a production of iHeart How Stuff Works.
2: And we're back. And we're back.
1: Sorry about the cliffhanger. (laughs) We're actually gonna be talking about one of the most famous cliffhangers of all time in this episode. I cannot wait to talk about it. I will which leave one? you in suspense. Yeah, I'm, trying, I'm
2: thinking through <laughs> our list. And I'm like, wait, which one?
1: I will leave you in suspense. Um, hmm. If you haven't listened to our part one on Revenge, all about the science and history, suggest you go do that um, because in this one we're going to be looking at specific examples of our more modern female revenge. Right. Right. And trigger warning before we get into it for sexual assault, violence, and brief mentions of mental health and suicide. Like we said in the previous episode, one aspect of revenge films are they are fantastical. They are heightened. They are usually ultra-violent. And I was thinking why this might be while I watched way too many of them. Uh, And I think it's because it ups the satisfaction. Nothing will ever erase what was done. And if the feeling of relief or satisfaction is destructive, it will only last in the short term, as we said in the previous episode. Might as well exaggerate it and keep doing it, (laughs) keep Mm. getting revenge. In your fantasies, you don't hold back. You indulge. You try to imagine how you can inflict as much pain and damage as was done to you. And also, as we said in the previous episode, science shows were really bad at judging the appropriate amount of payback. So, let's talk about some of these examples. But first... Disclaimer, almost all of them are white women. There's a lot of articles written about why that is. White women are allowed to be angry and vengeful and right. yet remain sympathetic. Right. And deserving of our empathy in a way that women of color still are not. But that is changing. Very slowly, but it is changing. All right. And another disclaimer, I guess, we categorized our examples into some basic recurring tropes. They're kind of arbitrary. <laughs> they're, they're things that come up a lot, and a right. lot of them do overlap. Um, And could be in multiple categories, but we did our best to organize them in
2: a way that makes sense.
1: Kind of, yes. (laughs)
2: Because there's a lot of them, it turns out. And again, they do overlap a lot. So you could be talking about one example in one place, but also could attribute it to other places. Yes, absolutely. For sure. And one of the biggest
1: genres Mm -hmm. that we needed to talk about is the genre rape and revenge, rape and revenge films. As you can imagine, these are very divisive movies that have generated a lot of discussion about exploitation and empowerment. These films typically start with a traditionally beautiful young woman getting raped, often by more than one man, and then often left for dead, not always. Then comes the revenge, violent. Frequently, a penis gets cut off. The rape is often quite long and brutal. These movies... Uh, long have been, for the most part, written and directed by men, which is part of the main criticism of them, and the rape scene filmed through the male gaze and the attacker's POV. This puts the audience in position of sympathizing with the rapist. The sometimes pornographic elements raise the question of rape as a form of entertainment.
2: I think we had that conversation for Game of Thrones. That was definitely one of the big criticisms that happened there. Mm -hmm. So these movies rose to popularity during the 70s in the U.S., Which coincided with discussions around so many issues and anxieties around women, including Roe versus Wade and abortion. But it also was when our society started taking rape seriously and also the loosening of censorship restrictions. So you can see our feminist movie Friday, Alien Edition, that we dearly love, (laughs) for more on the social anxieties around women and how they are reflected in our movies. Yes. So in I Spit on Your Grave, Main character, Jennifer, undergoes an unrelenting 21 minutes of rape in total and it engages in about 45 minutes of revenge. The actor who played Jennifer, Camille Keaton, allegedly said of the revenge portion that it made males in our audience significantly uncomfortable. I'm sure it did. I hope so. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, and yes, we mentioned that one at the end of our, our part one as being kind of one of the big first examples in the United States. But it wasn't the first one. It wasn't the first rape-revenge movie at all. In 1961, Igmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, a film depicting a medieval poem about a man's revenge against the men who raped his daughter, won Best Foreign Language Film. It went on to inspire Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left in 1972. And worth mentioning, uh, the woman who is raped is not always the one getting revenge. That's something else we sort of talked about in our Part 1 From Sarah Projanski's book, Watching Rape, Film and Television in Post-Feminist Culture, films in this subgenre, quote, depend on rape to motivate and justify a particularly violent version of masculinity, relegating the women to minor props in the narrative. She also wrote of the, quote, feminist paradox between a desire to end rape and a need to represent and therefore perpetuate discursive rape in order to challenge it.
2: So a few other prominent examples we wanted to mention. Miss 45, a 1981 film about a mute woman who was raped twice in one day and goes on a killing spree with her 45, first focusing on men who have wronged women and then targeting any man that crosses her path. The Accused, a 1989 Jonathan Kaplan film starring Jodie Foster as a woman who gets gang raped at a bar, to the cheers of patrons, and this is based on the real life 1983 case of Cheryl Arajo. This film does not show the rape scene till the very end, when a male witness recounts the event in court, and perhaps to reflect the unfortunate truth that we, as a society, trust men's words over women's. And just kind of throw it out there: Jodie Foster also did another one called *The Brave One*, which was after her and her fiance are brutally attacked, she goes on a vigilante spree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's
1: been in a few. Of those. That's kind of an interesting flip on it. In 1984, the British Board of Censors labeled rape and revenge movies, quote, video nasties, and they were deemed too explicit to be sold in stores. The board
2: said that they, quote, glorified the act of rape and inspired
1: copycat crimes.
2: Stieg Larsson's 2005 book Girl with a Dragon Tattoo later made it into a Swedish film and then an American remake has a side plot of rape and revenge, when the main character, Lisbeth, is coerced and sexually assaulted by her state-appointed legal guardian, the person who controls her money, essentially. She ties him down and tattoos rapist pig across his chest. After securing from him control of her life and finances, he cowers away from her next time they see each other. And there's an argument to be made that the main plot is sort of a rape-revenge story. And the original title of the book, by the way, was Men Who Hate Women. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's an interesting concept because the whole... It seems to be an origin story for her, which I think you and I talked a lot about while we were watching First Wives Club. There's always some origin story. And even though this is not necessarily your typical superhero movies, Mm -hmm. obviously, but this is still kind of the hero or anti-hero movies. But yeah, I guess you're right because that's her origin story. But then the plot of what happened and this mystery has a lot to do with what happened to... The Young Girls. Yes. And it definitely rolls with that whole theme.
1: Yes. And I, I might be mistaken. I'm pretty sure there's a new one is there? on uh, Netflix. you yes. Daniel Craig
2: in the American version?
1: He is. Okay. But there's, there's another new one. Oh, okay. Okay. That, yes. I think. Um, I think it has Claire Foy in it.
0: Mm. Anyway,
1: the category is a bit more diverse, this rape revenge category, than most people might think, especially more modernly. And this is where I come in because I watched a lot of these. Still, wow. Newer entries into the genre are changing things up with a spate of female-directed rape revenge movies that do not employ the male gaze that focus on the survivor instead. They are also more realistic in that the rape is perpetrated by someone the woman knows, uh, different from stranger stranger danger perpetrators of earlier films in the genre. And during the rape scene or scenes, the focus is on the experience of the victim rather than the perpetrator, and the aftermath of the trauma and PTSD. For example, Coralie Farjot's Revenge in 2017, this is a French rape-revenge movie that follows Jen, who is the mistress of a rich married man named Richard. While on vacation on a remote island only accessible via helicopter, one of Richard's friends rapes her while Richard is away. Instead of lashing out at his friend, though, when he finds out, he, of course, pushes her off a cliff Leaves her for dead, and Jen gets her revenge. Um, I there's a very fascinating line at the end where he says something like, Women always have to put up a fight. Oh, oh that same thing. Yeah. Um, and then MFA. <laughs> I also watched this one. This was a 2017 film directed by Natalia Leita and written by Leah McKendrick. And it follows art student Noelle, played by Francesca Eastwood. And Noelle is a, an introvert, and she's a bit of an outcast in her program. Her art is consistently criticized by her professor and the students, like, publicly uh, for being timid. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a crush on her fellow art student, Luke, who also seems to reciprocate her feelings. But then Luke brutally sexually assaults her. The camera stays focused on her during this whole thing. You can see her disassociate. The music drops out and goes. There's like a droning, humming sound, which reminds me of my one of my favorite episodes of television ever, and an episode of Buffy where her mom dies. Um, Noel is at first consumed with thoughts of getting justice. Uh, she does. She tells her roommate right away. And her roommate says, don't report it because I had a friend that same thing happened to her and nobody believed her and made her feel terrible about herself. But Noelle goes and does it anyway. And lo and behold, it's all like, did you have something to drink? Did you, did anybody see it? Uh, How long were you together alone in the room? Like all these Mm -hmm. questions that made her doubt herself. Um, Did you ever say no? Which she did. Um... Yeah, so then she goes to a support group and the support group is more intent on um, here's the fingernail polish that you can dip and it'll detect the date rape drug or, you know, ways of, like, dealing with it or finding support. And when Noelle is like, well, why don't we try to stop right. <laughs> the people that are doing the raping? And they're kind of like, well, that's the world we live in. Um, yeah, so she confronts her attacker accidentally kills him, kind of gets a taste for it, uh, and starts seeking out uh, Mm rapists and killing them. And as she's doing this, her art is becoming more and more brave, as the professor put it, like, wow, this is so good. Enough so that at the end, uh, she's the one they select to give the, like, speech because she's made such progress, and then she gets arrested. um, After she gets her MFA, she
2: gets arrested. So she had a glow up and then arrested. (laughs) (laughs) No? Is that not how we say it? So in Jennifer Kent's Nightingale from 2018, set in 1825 colonial Australia, after the film's protagonist, Irish convict Claire, is raped, and she's determined to get revenge on her attacker, who also murdered her infant child and husband, obviously. In tandem, the narrative explores the persecution of Australia's indigenous people, and the rape scenes unfold entirely from Claire's point of view. Um, And the frame closes in on her face. Kent said in an interview about the reaction to the film, what I've learned is the difficult relationship we have is in separating the act of rape as an act of sex as opposed to an act of violence. I'm in the latter camp. It's using a sexual act to attempt to annihilate another human being. That's its aim. I agree with that.
1: That was a really tough one, too. Yeah,
2: (laughs) which is also, when I watch revenge films, I typically... Stay away from those. Mm-hmm. So, which is why I'm like, I would never told you to watch, watch that.
1: That was a tough day. Yeah, I did all those yeah. in one day.
2: I did not know. You yeah. should have texted me. They are all heartbreaking. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have watched it with you, but I would have at least supported you through text. Been like, Are you okay? Are you okay now? How are you now?
1: <laughs> it was. They were rough. They were rough. Um, so, those are some prominent examples from that that genre of female revenge, which is a pretty big one, and it is. It is nice to see that women are making them now. I think that is a good step. Um, but let's turn to another category here, which is kind of broad, but the
2: bride-slash-mother-slash-family revenge. Right. And I think I see that in a lot of... You and I have talked about this repeatedly, about how ghosts and hauntings have a lot to do with mothers and vengeance. Yes. And I'm like, what? 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 Why is that such a thing? I don't know, but it
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, if you think of these sort of stereotypical roles of women as the scorned bride or the scorned lover, the mother whose child has been abused or killed, or the dutiful or conniving daughter. It's kind of what we're talking about here, although cheating and scorn is a whole category onto itself because it's such a big one that we'll get to in a moment. If you go all the way back, if you look at Shakespeare, he frequently dabbled in tales of betrayal and revenge in this genre, although not too often with women King Lear is an example, though. Two of King Lear's daughters, Regan and Goneril, enraged by his clear favoritism of his youngest daughter, their sister Cordelia, seek to get revenge against the both of them. Cordelia is banished, and her father, he does this whole thing at the beginning where he asks the three of them, who loves me the most? Mm. Fragile male egos. Oh, I know. And the, the first two sisters go into these this, this whole spiel and then cordelia who does love him the most is like i'm not sure i i can't find the words to express how much i love you they don't exist and he thinks oh well clearly and and banishes her um and this leaves him kind of at the whims of two two of her sisters um yeah and they enact all these plans to for power mostly but as happens a lot in these, the tension grows between Reagan and Goneril, who are both obsessed with obtaining the most power and both are competing for the love of the same man. Cordelia attempts to rescue her father, but they both end up dying in prison. Reagan and Goneril, meanwhile, both perish. Reagan, after Goneril, poisons her and Goneril kills herself, both consumed by vengeance, leaving many victims in their wake. mm mm-hmm. And then there is a film called The Bride we Black, which is from 1968 by Francois Truffaut, based on the book by William Irish slash Cornell Woolrich. Uh, went by pseudonym. Um, and this is about a woman systematically seeking revenge on the five men who murdered her husband on their wedding day. One by one, she murders them, and as the events lead up to the groom's day, the groom's day, Ooh. the groom's death are revealed Via flashbacks, we, as the audience, can see sort of what happened. We can piece it together. In one instance, she models that as the huntress Diana for one of her victims. He's an artist, and he's painting her, and Mm -hmm. she has this arrow, and you're like, oh, yeah. It's going down. (laughs) It's going down. (laughs) Yeah, she shoots him with the arrow, but she kind of looks at the mural depicting her, has a moment, doesn't paint over it, doesn't get rid of it, and is arrested. Right. In prison, she kills her fifth and final victim, who she hadn't been able to get to previously because he had been imprisoned himself. Oh, plot point. Yep. Then there's Enough uh, with Jennifer Lopez from 2002, which was based on the 1998 novel by Anna Quindlen, Black and Blue. Jennifer Lopez plays Slim, a woman who threatens to leave her abusive husband and father to her daughter after discovering he was having an affair. He beats her in response, informing her that unless she's willing to fight he's not going to, ha- to stop having this affair, and that because he's a man, it's, quote, no contest. She attempts to leave with her daughter and the help of some friends, but is foiled. She was forced to flee. She asks her rich father for money to help her escape, but he gives her just $12 because he doesn't believe her. He changes this tune, however, when he's threatened by Slim's husbands, men, and he helps her buy a house. After a lawyer informs her, essentially, no one's going to believe you, Slim takes martial arts classes and methodically plans her revenge. She wins in a fight between them and eventually kills him in self-defense.
2: That movie had this big buildup to Mm -hmm. be this epic scene. Did you watch it?
1: Long time ago, and I saw it on TBS, so I'm sure it was
2: edited. I'm sure. But it really is kind of anticlimactic. You're like, oh. I, I really, <laughs> maybe this is me needing I bigger know. revenge <laughs> I've seen. In my life, into you,
1: but I was just like
2: that lasted thirty seconds, and half the time was he put her in a corner, and she had to fight her way out. And I right. guess that made her the absolute victim, so she couldn't be disliked at any point in time. But it seemed kind of anticlimactic. You're like, why?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: She did all these prepping, and you would think that there's an ultimate showdown. But essentially, it's she has to trap him, trick him, and then she ends up being the you know bigger person, mm-hmm. but does end up killing him. Trying to right. give him his lee- leeway, apparently. Kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of uh, Sleeping with an Enemy, except in Sleeping with an Enemy, he comes after her. She just tries to leave. Have you seen that movie? No. It's interesting. So, in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, which kind of was one of the reasons you and I started talking about more and more about all the revenge films, Mm -hmm. in Volume 1 and Volume 2, made in 2003, these films followed Beatrix Kiddo, played by Uma Thurman, in her violent journey to get revenge after she is shot up, all pregnant on her wedding day. And she's sometimes referred to as the bride, actually, throughout the whole first. Right. It is. She is the bride. Uh However, it's also kind of a rape-revenge film. While pretending to be comatose, she was sexually assaulted multiple times. And then, if you watch the movie, you know the ultimate bloody, bloody ending. Um, Tarantino labeled Kill Bill as a feminist statement. And I know that this was actually written with Ms. Thurman in mind. And I believe while she was pregnant with her first child, they were kind of coming up with this idea together from what uh-huh. I understood. Um, this is a long line of movies with badass women working for a dude, which Tarantino has this weird obsession with very strong women. I don't yeah. know if it's weird, but he has an obsession with very strong women, which makes you go, yay, yay, right!" Yay, yay, baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. And obviously this was produced by Weinstein, which is part of the reason we didn't want to do an entire episode dedicated to one of these movies, even though to me I think that's one of the big, obviously, Big shout-outs to women, protective, being motherly, and being strong. And with that, during the middle of the many revelations, being finally heard and believed about Mr. Weinstein, Mm -hmm. which we know we're still dealing with, him and his walker herself. Um, many people were waiting for Uma Thurman's response because she had such a big relationship with both of them, and she finally did with the statement. She said in a, in a tweet? No, she said it in a post, I feel it's important to take your time, be fair, be exact, so dot, 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 happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Except you, Harvey, and all your wicked conspirators. I'm glad it's going slowly. You don't deserve a bullet, which is a very kiddo statement to make. And of course, she re- elaborated her story, with, I think in an interview, I can't remember who the interview was with, when she did talk about all of the abuse and all of the trauma that she had to go through while filming these movies. Mm -hmm. And I think, I know we're going to talk about another movie uh, as it comes down, but it kind of just, again, it's kind of what you were saying. It's kind of weird that it was created by this man. And obviously there's this double-fold reality of what was happening behind the scenes Mm -hmm. as well as trying to empower women or talk about women being empowered and coming to seek vengeance Is whole different perspective. Yeah, yeah, and I I watched
1: these very late last night Um, for the first time in a long time. I'd seen them before, Um, and I do love the ending of the second one where (sighs) the revenge kind of weighs out everything else. Right. Um, It like has to happen. It's just been building up. Right.
2: There's a couple, and there's a couple of things within that when we talk about um, Oshio Ren. Character, her origin story was because of vengeance when she watches her, which was one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in my life. I think I was so distraught after yeah. I saw it in the movies of her witnessing her parents being murdered. So, also, Vivica A. Fox's character, they kind of kept it open to have her daughter, who witnessed right. the murder, to possibly yeah. come back with a vengeance story of the her own. The cycle of right? revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It never ends. Which, yeah, of course. And it was, it, I think it would have been an interesting concept. Yeah. Um,
1: and then something else we wanted to talk about the 1968 novel True Grit by Charles Portis, later made into a 2010 Coen Brothers movie starring Haley Steinfeld. And before that, a 1969
2: John Wayne film. Love that John Wayne film. <laughs>
1: I've never seen that one. I,
2: that's what I grew
1: up on. Uh huh. I actually didn't see a John Wayne film until I was in college. Uh-huh. But anyway. So this is a Western about young girl Maddie Ross and her mission to get revenge on the man who murdered her father with the help of a U.S. Marshal and a Texas Ranger, both men. Um, Though they agree, they repeatedly try to ditch her despite her insistence that she accompany them. But she is more determined than they realize and eventually they're like, okay, you can come. Um, She eventually does get her revenge. Her target says something like, I didn't think you'd do it after she (laughs) shoots him. And she also climbs out of a
2: rattlesnake pit using the bones of a skeleton in there with her. Is that the book? Because in the movie, it's different. I think it's in the book. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of theorizing Variation, about the right. symbolize what that symbolizes in there. <laughs> right. Then there's Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is a 2017 film that follows Frances McDormand's character, Mildred, who is a mother trying to get revenge for her daughter's rape and murder. And taking it out on just about everyone, but mainly the police that pretty much have dismissed on and given up on the case. In fact, I got hit by a car while crossing the street to go see this movie. <laughs> and then I went to go, and my friends I was seeing it with, they were like, what's wrong with your legs? And I said, we'll see. <laughs> I remember it so well. Did you decide to take vengeance on the dude that
2: hit you? All I know is there's a white car from California. That's all I yeah, got. That could have been the beginning of a new movie. That could have been my story. <laughs> you prevented me I from remember. seeing I remember. I remember. I'll find you. <laughs> so Game of Thrones, as we were talking about earlier, was full of women seeking revenge. From Arya's list to Sansa's orchestrating the painful death of her abuser, Ramsay, and Daenerys' entire quest for the Iron Throne and her vengeful ending as well um also wanted to stick in here the korean horror film bedeviled which has several things including the loss of the daughter and i guess in some way a loss of a friendship it was um to me one of the most disturbing movies because it's they're isolated on the small island and she's getting pretty abused by her husband his brother her mother like it's just a constant Oof. and then it, of course it centered around that and with the loss and then causes this woman to quote-unquote snap, as I've seen in reviews, murdering the entire island's inhabitants, and it's very, very brutal. But yeah, it's definitely one of those up there when it comes to like being a mother. She was okay, she dealt with the abuse, and then she finally was like, oh no, no this more. is the last straw.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the last straw, oh! we've got another category, a huge one to talk about, and that is cheating. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we are back with a huge category when it comes to female revenge. Women getting revenge on men who cheated on them or, or who weren't loyal to them. Right.
2: So, The Women, a 1939 film inspired by Claire Booth Luce's play directed by George Kukar with a screenplay written by Anita Luce and Jane Murfin, and starring only women for all 130 speaking roles, including the iconic Joan Crawford. Yeah. Even all the subjects in the super glitzy Manhattan Apartments art are almost all of women. However, though, men aren't present... They are much discussed. The plot follows Mary, who, after finding out her husband is cheating on her, plans to, to get revenge on the other woman and a divorce from her husband, largely at the encouragement of her friends. On a train ride on her way to secure her divorce, she meets several other women doing the same thing. Gossip, backstabbing, catfights, and winning back husbands.
1: Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I, I watch this, too, for this. Did you? Wow. It's a classic. There's <laughs> a lot happening. You know, I, for someone who loves the transatlantic accent, I have trouble understanding it sometimes. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what are you saying? It's,
2: it's definitely those time frames.
1: One of the quotes I really loved uh, Don't confide in your girlfriends. If you do, they'll see to it in the name of friendship that you lose your husband and your home. <laughs> and that's from Mary's mom. The movie's tagline was See them with their hair down and their claws out. Yes. And apparently, during one of the cat fights, and one of the actresses, she gets bitten. Like, that was real, and she has a scar from it.
2: It was such a big thing that not too long ago, they just did a whole little mini series based on their relationship.
1: Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I was, when I was watching, I was thinking that in this world that the, all these women were growing right. up in, you can't have jobs, or it's harder to have a job, or you can't have property, or it's harder to own property and money, and you can't open lines of credit. Is it really so surprising that all these women are
2: competing with each other and tearing each other down. I don't I don't know. Right. Also, of note, this did spawn several remakes including the musical The Opposite Sex, which I watched. I'm an old person. <laughs> and of course, our new fave First Wives Club. Yes. <laughs> you love it. So, 1987's Fatal Attraction, Michael Douglas's character cheats on his wife with Glenn Close who does not appreciate when he tries to step away from their relationship. She goes down a path of increasingly intense acts of revenge, including sending an audio tape listing all the ways he is a selfish piece of garbage. And, um, yeah, yeah, Broiling his child's pet bunny, which is one of the more iconic scenes Mm. that everybody remembers, the bunny scene. The
1: bunny scene. The bunny scene. And this one is a great example of one of the main differences between revenge movies with a male protagonist versus a female protagonist. Because you're not meant to root for Glenn Close. Not at all. No. You are meant to see her as overreacting, crazy, and to be fair... She does a lot of things that weren't that, but if a male protagonist had done the same thing, I'm not super convinced audiences wouldn't still be on his side. Right,
2: because then you also look at the fact of his wife is barely there, mm-hmm. barely present in the movie, and she's just the, oh, the sweet little and No one really sees <laughs> the bottom line that he's an asshole who cheated.
1: Right, right.
2: And then, oh, this
1: one, the 1999 film *Cool Intentions, which I also watched for <laughs> Directed by Roger Cumble and starring Sarah Michelle Geller. Have you not seen it before? Nope. Oh, wow. Yeah. Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Philippi, and Selma Blair. This movie is based on the 1782 novel Les Liaisons Dangereuses, written by Pierre Chartorros de L'Aclos. This is set in, a, in Manhattan at large, but in a prep school specifically, and it's dark, comedic, with an at the time rare.
2: Uh, on-screen female kiss. They won an award on MTV. Yeah,
1: Yeah. sexiest kiss. That's right. Of course. Keller's character, Catherine, tries to enlist Felipe's character, her stepbrother, Sebastian, to help her get revenge on an ex by seducing Blair's character, Cecile, the girl Catherine's ex-boyfriend dumped her for. Okay, it's very convoluted. It is. But basically, she wants Sebastian to help her get revenge. Sebastian has different plans, though, including instead to seduce the virginal daughter of the headmaster, Annette, played by Witherspoon. So they make a bet. If Sebastian fails at seducing Annette, Catherine gets his very fancy Jaguar car. It's a specific model. Um, if he succeeds, he gets to sleep with the only person he's failed to have sex with after he's set his eyes on them. Catherine! What follows is a mass of debauchery and vengeance. Sebastian actually falls in love with Annette, of course. He wins the bet, but no longer desires to have any sex with Catherine, and Catherine is mad at this. She manipulates him into leaving Annette. Ultimately, he dies, and he gets revenge posthumously against Catherine. (laughs) I was watching this like, wait a minute. (laughs) But I did want to include this quote from Sarah Michelle Gellar's character Catherine. And this is when he's kind of, like, questioning how she behaves. She says, Eat me, Sebastian. It's all right for guys like you in court to fuck everyone, but when I do it, I get dumped for innocent little twits like Cecile. God forbid I exude confidence and enjoy sex. Do you think I relish the fact that I have to act like Mary Sunshine 24-7 so I can be considered a lady? I'm the Marsha f***ing Brady of the Upper East Side, and sometimes I want to kill myself. <laughs> what a film. It was a very up-and-coming Rebellious film, for sure. I I can see if I had been at the... Not that I'm, I am didn't like it or anything. It was enjoyable. But if I'd been at the right age, I would have been like, Whoa, yes. look at this. It was. I think yeah. it
2: also, just to remind Reese and Cecile's character, Selma Blair, get their vengeance they, uh, through. The whole thing yeah. is
1: like everybody gets revenge and then Mike get. Like revenged over, like it's right, so like it's a double whammy screwed. of all the things, <laughs>
2: yeah. all the things except for Reese drives away with the actual Royce. Yeah, Is it a it's a Jaguar. Uh, yeah, he, How does he she get drives the keys? away Jaguar. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But she's. You know, loving it with the glasses and all. Yeah. So Chicago, the 1920s musical that has been made in two movies, the 2002 Best Picture winner, and Broadway shows, the second longest-running show in history, is a story rife with female revenge. Velma Kelly kills her husband for cheating on her with her sister, and Roxy Hart kills her lover for attempting to break it off between them and lying to her about being able to make her famous. Right. Both are sent to jail, where they meet several other women in there for killing women who did them wrong. Resulting in my favorite song, Cell Block Tango. Had it coming. Yeah, and my favorite song, When You're Good to Mama, which by the way, there's a viral video going around with Florence Pugh doing a great rendition of that. Somebody sang song. it
1: at um, our holiday karaoke party here. Well, I was there there were other things happening, but someone sang Oh really? Yes.
2: When you yes. it wasn't me. No, it it was not either of but us I do but love somebody that did.
1: I, yeah. Then there's John Tucker Must Die, which is a 2016 comedy film directed by Betty Thomas with the tagline, Don't Get Mad, Get Everything. The plot revolves around three young women who discover their high school basketball star boyfriend, John Tucker, is dating all three of them at once, promising each that they are the one, and and they work together along with a fourth person to get revenge. Yeah,
2: so in 2011-2015 show, Revenge, (laughs) on ABC starring Emily Van Camp, possibly being the reboot this year with the Latinx lead. That could be cool. Inspired by Alexander Dumas' novel, The Count of Monte Cristo. Which is a fantastic novel. And we finally arrive at the thing I
1: teased at at the opening of one of the original cliffhangers. Okay, (laughs) I'm so happy about this. I I finally know who shot JR. (laughs) I
2: forgot that was... You you told me that you didn't know. I had no idea. Wait, Mm." what? And then I have to remember how young you are in comparison (laughs) to the shows. Okay,
1: so... The reason I know about this at all is because when I was in school, we used to do this thing where you would say, who shot J.R.? Right, the finger game. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. While well, moving from knuckle to knuckle with each word, I really don't know the point of it. Like, I don't remember how you won or what you learned from that, but I remember doing it.
2: It comes out as a gun, It comes right? out as a gun. Yeah. Okay, all
1: right. That's what it's supposed to do. I don't think that's what happened. We really didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> no one knew why we were doing it. I always thought it had something to do with JFK. <laughs> What? I don't know why. (laughs) Okay. But I now know it's from an 80s television show called Dallas, and in it was this repugnant fellow named J.R. The Mm. third season finale ended with him getting shot twice by a mysterious assailant. For eight months, people waited and were besieged by an incredibly effective marketing campaign. Since he was such a jerk, everyone had a motive, like anyone could have been the killer. There were t shirts that read, Who shot JR? or I shot JR. There were contests to guess who it was. During the 1980 US presidential campaign, Republicans handed out buttons that read, A Democrat shot JR. Candidate Jimmy Carter even joked that if only he knew who shot JR, he'd have no problem financing his campaign. The actor who played Jr. received an offer of a one hundred thousand pound vacation. Pound is in the UK monetary unit. If he'd reveal the shooter, but the actor claimed none of the actors knew. All the principal actors filmed a scene where they killed him to keep the mystery up. <laughs> you could place bets on it. And so finally, when the episode Who Done It? It was called Who Done It. Aired in November 1980, revealing the culprit. It was the highest-rated television show in history, drawing in 83 million viewers domestically and more than 350 million internationally. Turkish parliament even famously ended a session early, so the legislators could go home and find out who did it, while at the same time, a fundamentalist group in the same country called for the, quote, elimination of Dallas. (laughs) Anyway, who did it? Kristen Shepherd, played by Mary Crosby, juniors sister-in-law, mistress, and alleged mother of his child. So, female revenge. There you go. This is one of the first great television cliffhangers. It also sometimes gets credit for helping CNN gain momentum because they launched that same year. SNL parodied it on an episode sometimes called Who Shot CR? CR being cast member Charles Rocket. And the episode provided cast members with skits for how they'd kill CR. And at the end of the episode, he ad-libbed, I'd like to know who the f- did it, a line that got him fired. <laughs> uh, and there was, of course, a Simpsons parody, Who Shot Mr. Burns? Apparently, Jr. was shot again in the 2012 sequel or continuation. I don't know. Did not recover this
2: time. Okay. Actually gone. I forgot that it was revamped.
1: Yeah. Like,
2: is it still going?
1: I think it might be. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I learned a lot. lot. (laughs) I learned a lot. So that's, that's a good overview of that category. But we have a couple more categories we wanted to touch on. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Or celebrate your victories.
2: No matter the moment, you can savor it all with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. As the number one-ranked Sauvignon Blanc in the U.S., Kim Crawford has classic aromas of lifted citrus, tropical fruit, and crushed herbs to help you stay in a golden hour state of mind. Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford,
1: California. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a
2: campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And we're
1: back. Thank you, sponsor. So another category we wanted to, to talk about, because something you kind of see in some of these films, the system, getting revenge against the system. So one example of this is Zora Neale Hurston's short story, Sweat, in which a woman allows her drunk, abusive, cheating husband, who thoughtlessly spends all of her hard-earned money, um, to walk in a path of a snake that kills him. And he had originally planned that snake for her. She passively watches him die as the sun rises, ignoring his cries for help.
2: So, another good movie, 9 to 5, which I was thinking about after we watched... First Wife's Club, thinking maybe we should have watched it as well. I did watch it not too long ago. You did. I did uh, not go. Uh, yes, I did watch it a long time ago, and I was like, my gosh, I don't know if they c- this could be remade. There's so many problematic issues to this, but yeah. uh, 9 to 5, a 1980 film about three women, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Jane Fonda, who plot revenge against their male boss who spreads lies about having sex with one of them, Dolly Parton, and beat one of them out for a promotion, Lily Tomlin, who... She deserved it, obviously. And then also Jane Fonda comes in, who is the new worker, trying to figure out how everything is going right. and what, what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So while they have him trapped in a dog harness, they put in place all sorts of feminist policies, like flexible hours, childcare, and equal pay. I believe they bring back one of the receptionists that he fires mm-hmm. uh, during that time. So when, at the end... Uh, they release the boss who actually takes claim for doing all of these policies. Mm, which of Yeah, yeah. And so they then he gets a promotion that actually sends him to a completely different place. So mm-hmm. they kind of push him out, but he gets a promotion. Right. Yeah. But with that, his superior who figures that all out, that it, everything actually works and increases productivity. He keeps all of that in place except for the equal pay bit yeah. but that's kind of the revenge portion or the justice vengeful par- portion is they got to keep the policies in place while they got rid of him he still got the glory but yeah you know 1980s has to be that way right I guess so
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I actually watched this film for the first time two days ago um, Ridley Scott's 1991 Thelma and Louise written by Callie Corey and starring Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis When this movie first debuted, it was accused of negatively portraying men. Aww, yeah, (laughs) which it really doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, most of the male characters are kind of like, oh yeah, you sympathize with them. In 2016, this movie was named for preservation to the National Film Registry by the U.S. Library of Congress for being quote culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it's about two best friends who go on a weekend vacation together. Kind of goes a little awry uh, after a man attempts to rape Thelma. Louise finds them and threatens him with a gun, ultimately shooting him and forcing the pair to flee. After discussing their options, they decide that the authorities won't believe them, um, and so they decide, let's go to Mexico. It turns out Louise was raped years earlier in Texas, and she is insistent that they avoid going through that state. The FBI closes in, and after committing a series of crimes, they decide to, quote, keep going and drive off a cliff rather than go to jail. They can't beat the system, so they take each other's hands and drive over the Grand Canyon. Um, and I, when I was watching this, which I really enjoyed it, uh, it made me, movies like that always make me think of The Awakening, which I had to read, like, three times in high school. Yeah. Where you get, you get like, a taste. Kate Chopin? Yeah, and you can't go back. Like, no. Once you taste freedom, yeah. it's so... Yeah, you just can't go back. And then, kind of in a different track, <laughs> is First Wives Club, yes, which is a 1996 movie directed by Hugh Willis based on the Olivia Goldsmith novel about women getting revenge on their ex-husbands after the men ditch them for the younger models. You can see our whole episode we did on it for more about that one. I was going
2: to say, you may have also seen our live feed on that one. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, then we have another Tarantino movie which came out in 2007, Death Proof, and I will say it was one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Stuttman Mike, played by Kurt Russell, seems like a totally nice guy, but in reality, takes pleasure in tormenting women with this indestructible car. is told in two parts. In the first part, Stuttman Mike kills Four women with his car. By the way, the character of Jungle Julia is played by Sydney Poitier's daughter, Sydney Uh Poitier, which the sheriff suspects is because of a sexual nature when he kills these women. yeah. Um, the film seemingly restarts with a similar setup. Three women in the film industry, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Rosario Dawson, and Tracy Toms. And they're all followed by Stunt Mike, Mike as they pick up Zoe, real-life woman Zoe Bell, who is Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill and has been on several more of Tarantino's movies after the fact as an actress and not just a stunt person. Uh, so he convinces them to try out a stunt car, which is a reference to all the old school chase movies yeah it's like a like special car muscle muscle yeah. cars but as she's performing on riding on the hood mike slams into them a skirmish follows with a chase with mike getting away but the women decide to kill him and they do yeah. i think it has some of the best lines over the top ridiculous lines it does also kind of become problematic. not kind of it does become problematic as the main driver is a black woman Um, Tracy Toms, who kind of goes over the top with the whole expectation type of idea Mm -hmm. of being an angry, violent black woman. So that's problematic in himself, which we can talk about that as an issue in Tarantino and his movies in thinking that he has permission Mm -hmm. (laughs) to elaborate on that as a white man. But whatever. This again was produced by Weinstein's, And also just as a reminder, Death Proof was actually a part of a double feature with Planet Terror done by Michael Rodriguez. Rose McGowan was in both of those movies. And yeah. so you see kind of an accumulation of Ugh. Well, yeah. And I, I
1: watched this as part of leading up to this as well. And it was weird because Kurt Russell's whole thing is car is death booth, because as long as he's in the driver's seat, as long as he has power, he can't be killed. Right. And he the first person he kills is Rose McGowan, um, who's just like, oh, Okay, you know, I right. just need to ride home. Um, and it's hard not To see parallels, like real-life parallels.
2: Especially because she is the woman who kind of tells them something's wrong. Things are happening, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, And then I will say it took me a couple of watches because of the first half of the movie before I really, I was like, oh, I actually do like this movie, but Mm -hmm. it's so grotesque, that beginning part, and it's so overtly sexist but then you have that ha- second half with Zoe Bell and her and her badassery. I mean, she oh, is she amazing. Is awesome. yeah. If you actually ever watch just like snippets of her doing all of these amazing, amazing stunts, it's it's phenomenal. It's yeah. Just, oh. But I, I also appreciate the stark difference in Kurt Russell's character in the two halves. The beginning oh, yeah. and to the end of when he's like begging crying and crying and begging, like a yeah. little child because he actually gets injured. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of an interesting twist. I will say that.
1: I really appreciate how... It's one of the few revenge films for me where it just is like, you know
2: what? We're not really going to try to
1: make sense. We're just going to lean into the fantasy aspect of this. And I love when Zoe's fine. They think she might be hurt. She pops up. She's totally fine. And she's like, you want to go kill that guy? And they're like, okay. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I
2: love it. (laughs) And they do have Rosario Dawson as being the mama character. So they definitely have those tropes in there as well. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And then, okay, I, this is the last one I watched. Um, 2005's Hard Candy starring very young Ellen Page um, as a young woman who hunts pedophiles. So it starts with kind of like a text exchange, like a, a chat mm-hmm. room exchange, mm-hmm. and she's, she's playing all like, oh, yeah, that's so sweet, and gets up to this guy's place. Then
2: she roofies him, tortures him. Um, oh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I do think that one of the things about this film, and it is purposeful, is you have doubts about who is the good guy versus yeah. the bad guy, or the good person mm-hmm. versus the bad person, because you have doubts about who's telling the truth, right. and going back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and then, you know, it reveals itself slowly. Yeah. I will say, many a men have told me how awful this movie is. <laughs> And how they would never watch it or never want to see it again. never. And I was like, yeah. what happens? I don't understand. Why is it so bad? But that one scene yeah. where he's on the table is yes. what has gotten all of them, which I find hilarious to a point. I'm like, do you not see all of these awful things that happen to women? That sure. is, is literally the plot, the, mm-hmm. the beginning, the catalyst. And that was the most, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not great. No. But it's definitely not the worst thing that I've seen in a movie. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was tense. I was very on edge. That's the last thing I watched before we came in. <laughs> yeah. No wonder you looked at me with surprise. Uh,
2: like, oh. <laughs> and then there's Vengeance. Yes. Um, vengeance 2005, Chan Park Wook. This is the third and final entry into the Vengeance trilogy, which is a three obviously three part series. Yeah. Trilogy. <laughs> and it follows a woman wrongly convicted of murdering a child and after she does her time in jail and is released, she finds a real killer and gets her revenge. Again, this is another Korean thriller. I will say I've not seen this one. Mm-hmm. Mainly because I wanted to start with the first one, which I don't think they actually align no, in any way. I don't think so. But I still wanted to do it that way. But the first one, again, these are really intense <laughs> Yeah. intense movies. And oh, I'm yeah. like, I don't know if I can do this one right now. Which again, yeah. I cannot believe you watched all of these back to back to back to back. <laughs> I'm going home and I'm like, just gonna... you didn't watch How to Train a Dragon, aren't you?
1: Or <laughs> Harry Potter. I might. I will <laughs> do what I have to do. Um, and then there's CBS's Why Women Kill from creator Mark Cherry, which tracks the revenge of three women played by Jennifer Goodwin, Lucy Liu, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste from three different decades living in the same house um, whose husbands, I think, all of their husbands cheated on them. Okay, and then I, *Handmaid's Tale*
2: maybe, maybe I think it's like, yeah, I guess you. It's could a put revenge put in there. against system. Yeah, yeah, it goes against the system, and I would say *Foxy Brown*. I, d- I don't want to put too much attention to it because it's definitely part of that 1970s era of black exploitation films that occurred, and, and there was a lot of problematic issues. At one point, you want to celebrate because it's a strong black woman who gets yeah. to be the lead and who, who gets her vengeance, but at the same time, the stereotype of her being angry as well as violent as well as a prostitute, all of these things kind of have this uh, back and forth. Pam Pam Greer, though, is a force. Yo, so, yeah. you know, people kind of looked up to that as well, so this kind of this fine line, but it is a tale of a girlfriend avenging the death of her cop boyfriend. So... I think it is something to know about as well. There are so many. There
1: are so many. We can keep going, going, and going. We do want to, one more small category, well, I guess one and a half, (laughs) Um, is supernatural. There are supernatural kind of vengeance stories. Um, So many of them are about adolescence. My theory, again, that we're so afraid of female sexuality, especially in young women. Um, Wuthering Heights could be an example of this. I saw it in a lot of things. Heathcliff revenge on Henley and Catherine um, but it's not really I mean it's been a long time since I've read that book I don't know. A lot of people included it, so I thought I'd throw it in there.
2: Yeah, I guess I didn't think about that one. Carrie, a 1976 Brian De Palma film based on the novel by Stephen King, classic teenage body, adolescence, vengeance horror, periods. Oh, my gosh. Carrie uses her abilities to get revenge on her very religious, over-the-top, strict mother and on the classmates who publicly make fun of her by dumping pig's blood on her head at prom. Yeah, causing this whole rift of things to happen because she is teased for being awkward and over-the-top, Strange. Yes. And also can carry two, which mm-hmm. I have
1: seen. I have not seen that one. Well, I don't know it's worth it, but <laughs> <laughs> The Craft. The Craft. Um, this one's kind of tricky. And this is another one we'll probably eventually do a whole episode oh, yeah. on. Oh yeah. But in brief, new girl Sarah Bailey becomes friends with rumored witches and definite outcast. Yeah, it turns out they actually are witches. And through a series of events, um they cast revenge spells and beauty spells, all kinds of spells on people who have done them wrong or on themselves. To, to make themselves prettier. Um, but of course, the spells have negative side effects. Surprise, surprise. Mm. And eventually, the women, for the most part, turn against each other, kind of get revenge on each other. Right.
2: And we will be watching that one for sure. I think we'll, we may include like Hocus Pocus and ah, oh. Witches of Eastwick. I think those are definitely things that we will have to focus oh, yeah. on as well. Shudder, a 2008 Mosiyaki Ochi'ai American remake of Thai Movie In the movie, newlyweds Ben and Jane move to Tokyo so Ben, played by Joshua Jackson, can pursue a career in photography. Side note, why are all these horror movies in Japan? Well, it is funny. Can we just talk about that? The American remakes are always in Japan. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Why? Um, While out driving, Jane accidentally hits a woman in the middle of the road, but shocker, the body disappears. Photos start to show up with mysterious lights, spirit photography, quote unquote. Jane starts to have visions and feels a presence hanging over her Turns out that Ben had photographed his friends raping her and doing nothing to stop it, and the ghost was hanging on Ben's shoulder. Which actually also, it was because he was having an affair with her, she wanted to stay with him, and this was his way of getting her
1: away from him. Right, so when she hit the, the woman in the beginning, it was already the ghost. Right. Right. And then we've discussed Jennifer's body before. This is a 2009 movie directed by Karen Kusama, written by Diablo Cody and starring Megan Fox as the titular character who was offered up as a virgin sacrifice in a satanic ritual. Also, just watched this for the first time and read so much about it. See,
2: I'm really sad you didn't tell me about that because I wanted to watch this one with you. I remember talking to you about yes. this as, uh, you know, it's supposed to be funny trope and da-da-da-da. Oh, my gosh. I'm really sad I missed that on that. I point. learned so much I because right now it's going through kind
1: of a like resurgence. Oh, is it? Yes, and they're saying because the time is right, it's before it's time, but also the marketing campaign, they tried to convince Megan Fox to like start a porn site. They just marketed it all wrong. Yeah. It's really gross. I don't remember that. I learned a lot. But anyway, she wasn't a virgin, Megan Fox's character, so she becomes possessed instead permanently and goes on a killing spree killing dudes. Um, It doesn't really sound like a revenge fantasy at first, um, but some have interpreted it as Jennifer's body getting revenge on those who abused her, the sacrificing of a young woman being sacrificed by men at an altar is too reminiscent of Harvey Weinstein, the system that allowed for it to happen. Um, and also at the end, her friend gets revenge on the band. Right. <laughs> she gets out. She does. This, yes. she
2: Adam, does. Brody. <laughs> Adam Brody. Adam Brody, because he's also going to be in the movie we just talked about with Carey Mulligan. He's oh, one of the yeah, nice that's guys. Right.
1: That's right. And then he's in nice guy. Um, Ready or Not, that uh, where he's kind of like actually a nice guy. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't see that one. <laughs> oh, man. And then we're not going to go into this one, but I... I was thinking about some metaphorical revenge movies where where if you're talking about, like, female vengeance as seen through climate change or Mother Earth. Right. This, I remember when I saw Mother, exclamation point, and everyone was like, what is it a metaphor for? And some people thought it was Mother Earth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's a lot of our— That was a lot. That was a lot. (laughs) That was a whole— but that brings us to the end of this episode. If you if we missed any, if you wanna share any Oh, with we missed us, so many. Oh yeah, we did. So you should tell us your favorites. Exactly. Send your favorites to our email, stuffmedia Stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Okay, thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Top Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines.